going to be in Mark 7, verses 1 through 23 today. Hear now God's word. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Prayer from Calvin for illumination. Let us call upon our God and Father, beseeching Him, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in Him, mercifully to enlighten us by His Holy Spirit in the true understanding of His Word, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by His Word to place our trust only in Him and to serve and honor Him as we ought, so that we may glorify His holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example, rendering to God the love and the obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it pleased Him graciously to receive us among the number of His servants and children. Amen. Please be seated. As we come to this fairly long passage in the book of Mark, we see again the reappearance of 
the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. If you remember, we saw them back in chapter 2. The scribes had been sent down from Jerusalem to investigate, to spy on Jesus. They've been observing his every move, trying to get him to slip up. They want to see him break the law of Moses so they can put him to death. Their investigation is not an open-mindedness to his ministry or his message. He's a threat to their very movement. And so they're looking for a way to, to trap him. And so at every corner, every opportunity, when something looks off, they're ready to pounce on him. We saw them accuse him for unlawfully plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath earlier. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem began to attribute his casting out of demons to, to the work of Satan. And now the Pharisees and scribes gather to him again, looking for another opportunity for him to slip up. And sure enough, they do. And this time, it's for his disciples eating without first washing their hands. And what's the big deal with that, with eating without washing your hands? We, we do that in our culture. We tell our kids to, to wash before they eat. We need to understand why this was such a big deal to them. It has nothing to do with hygiene, as it does in our culture. Germ theory didn't exist yet. Washing before you ate was part of what was known as the tradition of the elders. And we'll get to more of that in a second. But this word tradition comes up over and over again in this passage. It occurs six times and is is a focus in the passage. And before we look at what's going on here with tradition and how Jesus thinks about tradition, let's be clear what he's not saying. Jesus is not against, inherently, the idea of tradition. Right? Tradition's not necessarily a bad word. It can be a good word. Right? Paul says to the Thessalonians, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught. Right? A tradition is something that's handed down. If you think about it, tradition is actually a necessary word because our lives are actually built around traditions. We gather here every Sunday morning at 9.30. Okay, that's a tradition. That's a helpful tradition. We sing Psalm 67 every week. That's a tradition. I love it. There's nothing wrong with tradition per se. Jesus is not also, also not being anti-ritual. Okay, Jesus isn't against the idea of ritual washings. He gave us a ritual washing in baptism for his church. Jesus is also not anti-law or anti-Moses. If you remember back in chapter 1, he healed a man with leprosy and he tells the man to go and to show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded. Right? Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He says, not a jot or a tittle will, will pass away before all is accomplished. So what was Jesus getting at in his criticism? He's talking about the tradition of the elders. What was the tradition of the elders all about? The tradition of the elders was an extra-biblical oral tradition that grew up around the scriptures. Went back, wait, some claim all the way back to Moses. It had been developed by teachers and legal experts for centuries. But there was this oral tradition that developed over the centuries and passed down generation after generation. Eventually it does get written down a couple of hundred years after Jesus in what's called the Mishnah, which is basically a, a compilation of Jewish oral law. But it's this long-standing tradition that grew up around the Scripture, and the purpose of this tradition was twofold. It showed you how to apply the law of Moses, or the Torah, every, to everyday life, and it put a fence around the law of Moses. 
right? It was about applying the law of Moses to everyday life. So, you know, what, is, what does this look like for my life practically to obey this command? Right? It's, it's about application. But secondly, it built a fence around the law to safeguard you from disobeying it. Right? Fences are meant to protect people. You want to make sure your kids don't fall in the pool, you, you build a fence around it. People who struggle with alcoholism don't go sit at a bar and you know, try by their own willpower to avoid having a drink. They avoid the bar altogether. It's a fencing. It's, it's a boundary. A way of protecting yourself from disobeying. You want to make sure you don't violate a command then you don't even get close to it by fencing it in. And in keeping with the tradition, uh, you are being faithful to the law. And faithfulness to the law, what was going uh, to cause God to rescue the Israelites from the Romans. But what may have started off with good intentions became something else. What started as an attempt of interpretation and application of the law became a, a legislative system that was used to oppress people. So God commands, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Don't work on the Sabbath, rest on the Sabbath. Well, what constitutes work? That's what the tradition of the elders would try to work out. What does that look like practically? And how can I be sure that I get nowhere near violating that command? So, for example, you're allotted a certain number of steps to take on the Sabbath before you would be considered working on the Sabbath. There was a law about where you could and could not spit on the Sabbath. You could spit on a rock, but you couldn't spit on the dirt. Because if you spit on the dirt, that's actually cultivating the land, and cultivating the land is a form of work. You aren't allowed to look into a mirror on the Sabbath because you may see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out, which would be work. I wouldn't have struggled with that law too much. And some of these things get really detailed. I mean, there was a debate among, amongst the rabbis about, uh, on the Sabbath, if a man with a wooden leg, if his house catches on fire, is he allowed to carry the wooden leg out of the house? In addition to all the Sabbath laws, they had put in place all sorts of rules for purity. So when you come to the section on ritual washing, it's very extensive. Tons and tons of instructions on washings. Their daily lives were filled with all sorts of ritual washings. And we see that reflected in the passage in Mark's parenthetical comments. Right? Mark was writing to Gentiles and he's trying to explain Jewish customs to them. And he's, he's describing all these washings. They washed before meals and and when they come from the marketplace, they washed their furniture and their kitchenware and their utensils. They had all these washings. If you touched a Gentile, you had to wash. Their, their lives were filled with ceremonial washing. They even had designated pools for these washings called mikvah. And if you didn't follow the rules, then you would not share table, they would not share table fellowship with you. And these people, these Pharisees, are you know, well-respected, prominent people. Socially, but they wouldn't share fellowship with you because you were defiled. You were considered unclean, unfit for worship. In their mind, you were against them, their mission for bringing the divine restoration to Israel. You couldn't enter the temple. You had to be quarantined. There's a story of a rabbi being excommunicated for not washing before eating bread. And so the Pharisees see the disciples of Jesus not washed before a meal. And so they naturally ask, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now that's not asking out of curiosity, like, hey, why don't they, why don't they do this? It's, it's an accusation. Like, who do you think you are? 
That's the backdrop of our text. And Jesus criticizes them very sharply. Quotes the book of Isaiah. Calls them hypocrites. Play actors. Hearts far from God. Worshipping in vain. Why did he criticize them and their tradition so sharply? Three reasons we'll look at today. They used their tradition to add to the word of God, to contradict the word of God, and it blinded them from the point of the word of God. From all these oral traditions, they created this extensive legislative system imposed on people that was equal with the word of God or the commandments of God. It was equal with scripture. So if you didn't ceremonially wash before a meal, you were not simply violating a man-made law. You were actually violating the command of God. There's a quote from one rabbi that says, The one who eats with unwashed hands sins as much as the one who lies with a harlot. Now in the law of Moses, the scripture, only the priests were commanded to undergo this regular ritual washing. You read about that in Exodus 30 and 40, Leviticus 15. Um, which is a very appropriate picture. The priest who represents and, and mediates for the people right, has to be clean as he approaches God. He has to undergo purification. Right? There was a, a basin of water in the, in the tabernacle for this washing. But they added to what God said and enforced their commandments. They said, let's wash everybody. Let's fence it in even more. Now no, notice how Jesus in this passage contrasts over and over their tradition with the word of God. He says in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, you reject the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 13, you make void the word of God by your tradition. You have this stark contrast of commandments of men, and then you have a category of commandments of God. And they are not equal in authority. One is from God and binding on people and to be obeyed. And the other is from men and not binding and not to be obeyed. It's important to note that many of their commandments were not inherently evil. Right? They, didn't, uh, they did use their tradition for evil ends, as we'll see in a, a little bit. But this command is about washing hands. Right? What's wrong with washing hands? What's wrong with, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that God didn't command it. And therefore it's not binding. These weren't just preferences of personal piety that they were doing. They were binding on the people. Now Jesus has a very high view of the scriptures of the Old Testament at that time. And it has a unique and supreme authority. Like we said, it's, he said, not a jot or a tittle will pass from it until all is accomplished. It's always a temptation for us to, to add to the word of God. Eve did it in the garden. And we've been doing it ever since. Like growing up, it was about what movies and, and music you could watch and listen to or what you could drink. And there was this weird unwritten tradition about, uh, and where I grew up, where you couldn't wear blue jeans to church on Sunday, but you could on Wednesday. Um, and you were kind of looked down on if you didn't follow this unwritten law. Like we're trying to be like Jesus, you know, and he had the, the khakis and the penny loafers on Sunday. And some of that stuff still goes on in some circles. 
But there's a real danger of looking back and being glad we've kind of moved on from that. And what you realize is that we really haven't. We just kind of shift things. It just kind of morphs into something else. Right? So in our circles, one of the things I've discovered is, you know, schooling options aren't just options. Right? God has not commanded all kids go to private school. God has not given a commandment that all kids go to public school, or God has not given a commandment that all kids go to home school. God has not given us a commandment that we should all eat organic food. God has not given us a commandment that we should vote Republican. God has not given us a commandment that we should vote Democrat. Some of us are going, of course not, because God's a libertarian. No, not that either. We cannot bind the conscience of our brothers and sisters with commands that God has not given us. That was the danger of their tradition. They were elevating their own rules and laws to an ultimate authority and enslaving people to them. But Jesus doesn't simply stop at exposing how they've added to what God has said. He also shows them how they've used their tradition to actually contradict what God has said. He says, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. There's the charge. You, you reject the commandment of God. And that's not just a platitude. Here's an example. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. So Jesus gives them this very specific example. God gave this very plain command, honor your father and mother. Right? And one of the ways you do that, uh, especially in the ancient world, was as your parents get older and, and can no longer work, you, you provide for them and take care of them. There's no such thing as social security. Um, they were largely dependent on their children for survival. But the Pharisees would use the korban rule to get around this basic responsibility. The word korban just means offering. And the idea was that you could devote all your money to God, which sounds very, very spiritual, but they used it to basically make the funds inaccessible to the parents. It was basically a loophole to get out of what God had commanded in the fifth commandment. So when your parents came seeking help, you could tell them, I'm sorry, but it's Corbin, it's devoted to God, I can't give it to you. They used their tradition to twist the commandments of God. Right? You think that affects us? You think traditions don't grow up around us and influence how we respond to the Word of God? If you study the, the history of Southern Presbyterianism, there's an undeniable blot of racism. Many of them owned slaves and wrote in defense of slavery. And it wasn't because they didn't read their Bibles. Right? They knew their Bibles. Some of them even wrote really good books on theology. It was a tradition that they inherited and they took their cues from the world. And even during the Civil Rights Movement, many of the founders of the denomination supported segregation and defended white supremacy groups. Now, thankfully, the denomination in the last couple of years at, at GA have actually acknowledged this and, and repented from this. And so there's a, a corporate repentance going on, which we're thankful for. But that really wasn't like that long ago. Like, you think we're outside of that? 
that we aren't inheriting and passing on our own traditions? You think culture is not constantly pushing us to twist scripture? You think the the current milieu of political correctness that you and I breathe in every day doesn't affect how we read and talk about what the scriptures say? And even scarier, you think that's not being passed on to our children. The Pharisees had used their tradition to twist what God had commanded And this example of Corbin was not an anomaly in their system. For Jesus says, in many such things you do. This is one example of but hundreds I could list, Jesus says. This plagued their whole way of thinking. There were all kind of loopholes that they had created to get out of what, to get around what God had said. They claimed to honor God's law, but in reality they trashed it and worked against it. Sometimes we imagine that the Pharisees had a a really high view of the law or that legalists have a really high view of the law and they just take the law too seriously because they're so meticulous with their rules. That's not true. They didn't have a high view of the law. They had a low view of the law because they neglected the majority of it about love and compassion. A low view of the law leads to legalism. Listen to this quote from J. Gresham Machen. He says, The legalism of the Pharisees with its regulations of the minute details of life was not really making the law too hard to keep. It was really making it too easy. The truth is it is easier to cleanse the outside of the cup than it is to cleanse the heart. If the Pharisees had recognized that the law's demands, not only the observance of external rules, but also primarily mercy and justice and love for God and men, they would have not been so readily satisfied with the measure of their obedience and the law would then have, been, have fulfilled its great function of being a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. A low view of the law leads to legalism in religion. A high view of law makes man a seeker after grace. They added to the word of God and they twisted the word of God. But ultimately they missed the real focus of the word of God, the real point of the word of God. Because after he rebukes them, Jesus gathers the crowd to, to teach them about true defilement. Because that's really how this whole conversation got started, was around washing hands and, and clean and unclean and defiled. And the word of God talks about that. It talks about unclean and clean. Now notice when Jesus teaches them about defilement, he never questions the reality of it. Right? He assumes defilement is a real thing. Our culture increasingly is moving us to a place that says, nothing defiles you. All right, accept who you are. Believe in yourself. You're not dirty. You don't need to be cleaned. You're fine just the way you are. But Jesus says, something does defile you. And surely all this seems antiquated. Right? Our lives aren't filled with ritual washings and unclean and clean laws. But at the heart of this passage is a question that transcends all cultures and times and places. And it's the basic question, what makes me dirty? And what makes me clean? What makes me dirty? And what makes me clean? The scriptures use words like clean and unclean and and imagery like soiled garments and white garments. Because everyone in life is basically trying to wash away a stain that they know is there. Even though we've abandoned these ancient categories, we still function the same way. And what Jesus says is that the, what the Pharisees do and what we often do 
is to try to clean themselves from the outside in. They took an outside-in approach. That is to say that the, the problem, the thing that makes me dirty, the thing that defiles me, exists outside of myself. All right? And the solution is found by looking in myself. Right? The pro- proclivity of human nature is to think that which is outside of me is what defiles me. Okay? The problem exists out there somewhere. We think where you live like what city, what house, what neighborhood? That's what defiles me or makes me clean. How much money or what type of job you have defiles you or makes you clean. Where your kids go to school defiles you or makes you clean. Your physical appearance defiles you or makes you clean. How am I perceived by the world defiles me or makes me clean? Right, so I have to have the perfect Facebook photo to portray myself a certain way. Some of us try to clean and using Christian ministry. We're washing away a stain that we know is there. How are you washing? How are you trying to get clean? The problem with the Pharisees' approach is that it assumes the problems outside of ourselves and the solution is found through looking within ourselves, an outside-in approach. And Jesus completely flips there in our understanding of defilement on its head by placing it inside-out instead of outside-in. Jesus tells us that what defiles us doesn't come from outside of ourselves. Right, The food you eat doesn't defile you. It goes through your stomach and, and is expelled, he says. What defiles you comes from within our hearts. When we talk about heart, we usually talk about emotions or feelings, but in Scripture, the heart is the the center of your being. It's mind, will, and emotions. It's who you really are. It's why in Proverbs it says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Right? When Jesus gives that long list of sins at the end of the passage, he says all these things come out, these flow out of the heart. John Owen says, temptations do not put anything into a man that is not there already. Latent in all our hearts are these things creeping at the door. And Jesus says our problem is there at the core of who we are. We saw in our call to confession how desperately wicked our heart is. Our problem is, is so much deeper than the Pharisees or we often think. So much so that we saw in Ezekiel that we actually need a new heart. There's a story I love about G.K. Chesterton. I don't know if it's true or not, but it sounds like it's true. Um, there was a newspaper that sent out an inquiry to, to several influential authors of his time, asking them to write essays responding to the, to the basic question of what's wrong with the world. And Chesterton supposedly uh, submitted his reply and he said, Dear sirs, I am. Period. That was his essay. Have you come to see your heart that way? To be a Christian means to know yourself as you truly are. Do you see yourself as the problem? Your own heart as inclined toward evil and the needing of washing and regeneration and a new heart. Alexander Solzhenitsyn is a devout communist who served as a captain in the Red Army during Stalin's reign in World War II. Committed and witnessed atrocities Right, horrific war crimes, right? innocent people robbed of their possessions, elderly people robbed, 
women taking advantage of and that kind of thing. And eventually he began to critique the Soviets' forced labor camps and, uh, and mistreatment of people during Stalin's reign. And uh, his criticism actually led to his own imprisonment for eight years and his own mistreatment and eventual deportation. Uh, and he wrote a book chronicling his experience in prison. Here's what he said. He says, It was granted to me to carry away from my prison years this essential experience. How a human being becomes evil and how good. In the intoxication of useful success, I have felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. In the surfeit of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good, and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. And it was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first strivings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line between good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The primary problem in our lives is not our circumstances or our surroundings or all the things out there. The primary problem is that our hearts are desperately wicked. Jesus says our hearts are the source of defilement. We're the problem. Does that leave us hopeless? If that's all we knew, that would leave us hopeless. Where does our hope come from? Our hope comes from verse 19 in a seemingly inconsequential verse. It's a parenthetical comment. We skim right over it when we read it, when it says, Thus he declared all foods clean. That's a remarkable verse. Because Jesus says, and we saw earlier, I mean, Scripture is binding, right? Not a jot or a tittle will pass away from the Word. And he just rebuked the Pharisees for adding to the Word of God and contradicting the Word of God. But didn't God command the Jews to avoid certain foods? There were certain foods that were clean and unclean. And now Jesus is declaring all foods clean when the Word of God says otherwise. I thought Jesus had a high view of the law of Moses. And now he's just kind of throwing it under the rug. How is he not doing what he just rebuked the Pharisees for? We've been seeing who Jesus is in Mark. We've already seen him ignore the cleanliness laws and touching lepers and, and touching dead bodies. Both things that make a Jew unclean. But when we read the Bible with Jesus at the center, it makes perfect sense because Jesus isn't abolishing the law. He's fulfilling the law. He's not saying, now that I'm here, we're beyond these, this idea of cleanliness or uncleanliness. We're doing away with all that. He's saying, they've been fulfilled in me. Okay, washing in the Old Testament was never meant to really clean you. It was meant to reveal that you needed cleansing. Right, the human heart couldn't be cleansed with water. It was a visual aid of sorts, reminding us that you had to be clean in God's presence. And as we saw in Ezekiel, God promised that He Himself would sprinkle His people with clean water and make us clean. And it's only through the blood of Christ that we find ourselves clean. This is the very reason that Christ died. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Why? That He might sanctify her, having cleansed, past tense, by having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In a few moments, we're going to come to the table to eat. 
and drink. And to eat at this table, you have to be clean. And you don't have to go to the restroom to wash, but you do have to be washed. You have to be washed by another. And this is the one that says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us, to wash us from all unrighteousness. Let's prepare as we come to the table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to avoid our temptation to add to it, our inclination to twist it and contradict it, God, and to miss your redemption at the center of it in Christ. Prepare our hearts now as we come. Amen.